Grand. So we're leaving behind the sort of general exploration of world views, theism and so on, onto more specifically Christian topics uh, now. Mark Allen Powell, who's a professor of New Testament uh, in America, says that 150 years ago there was a fairly well-respected scholar named Bruno Bauer who maintained that the historical person Jesus never existed. Anyone who says that today, says Powell, in the academic world at least, gets grouped with the scientific holdouts who want to believe that the world is flat. According to Richard Dawkins, in his best-selling book, The God Delusion, it's even possible to mount a serious, though not widely supported, historical case that Jesus never lived at all, as has been done by, among others, Professor G.A. Wells of the University of London. And then he moves on. He doesn't tell you that Professor Wells isn't a historian or a New Testament theologian or anything, but a professor of German language. Um, Dawkins later admits Jesus probably existed. It's a bit begrudging, but he's not quite going for the scientific holdout position. Um, Victor Stenger, another of the neo-atheist writers, goes a little bit further. He says a number of scholars have made the case for the non-historicity of Jesus, and their conclusions are convincing, to him uh, at least. Well, uh, you may have heard of uh, Giza Vermez. Um, this is a little book, The Resurrection, from which this quote comes. He's a, probably one of today's leading uh, New Testament scholars and is uh, a Jewish New Testament scholar. He says, Jesus was a real historical person. In my opinion, the difficulties arising from the denial of his existence, still verifiously, I can say that word, maintained, Vociferously, thank you, maintained in small circles of rationalist dogmatists, so that's where he'd put Victor Stenger, uh, far exceed those deriving from its acceptance. Or Graham Stanton, who's uh, Lady Margaret's Professor of Divinity at the University of Cambridge, he weighs in with today nearly all historians, whether Christians or not, accept that Jesus existed and that the Gospels contain plenty of valuable evidence which has to be weighed and assessed critically. Um, not only can we know the guy exists, maybe we've got some good sources for knowing a little bit about him uh, as well. Well, occasionally you'll find stuff like this, the sort of Jesus-never-existed position circulating on the, the internet or the occasional new atheist writer. I came across this 
uh, slide which was up at a particular atheist blog. And there's a quote from Dr. Bart Ehrman, who you may have heard of as a fairly um, sceptical, uh, agnostic New Testament scholar, uh, a number of best-selling uh, popular books uh, that take a fairly sceptical look at Jesus and the Gospels and so on. And this quote from Bart Ehrman goes as follows. In the entire first Christian century, Jesus is not mentioned by a single Greek or Roman historian, religion scholar, politician, philosopher or poet. His name never occurs in a single inscription and it's never found in a single piece of private correspondence. Zero. Zip references. Well, I think it's a little bit unfair to Ehrman. That's seems to give the impression that he's fairly sceptical about Jesus. Um, You have to put this in the context of the fact that Bart Ehrman's most recent book is Did Jesus Exist? The Historical Argument for Jesus of Nazareth. And I've got a quote here uh, from an interview uh, that he gave uh, in conjunction with promoting that new book of his. And he says, well, Jesus is mentioned a couple of times within 80 years of his life by two Roman sources. Pliny and Tacitus is not too sure about Suetonius, another possible source. And he's almost certainly referred to twice in the Jewish historian Josephus. It's not much, but it's something. And it shows that Jesus was indeed known to exist in pagan and Jewish circles within a century of his life. The really compelling evidence, though, comes in the Christian sources. Notice that the quote that we had on the Atheist website didn't mention Christian sources. Uh, Mythicists, those who write off the historical Jesus' existence, write these sources off because they're Christian and therefore biased. But this is not a historically solid way to proceed, says Ehrman. Christian sources are sources every bit as much as pagan and Jewish sources are. What I show in Did Jesus Exist is that there are so many Christian sources that can be used by historians that there's really no doubt at all that Jesus at least existed. Just to give an example, by any credible dating, the Apostle Paul must have converted to believe in Jesus within two or three years of Jesus' death. And Paul knew some facts about Jesus' life. He knew some of his teachings. He knew his closest disciple, Peter, and he knew his brother, James. Personally, if Jesus didn't exist, you'd think that his brother would know about it. (laughs) The historian cannot simply ignore what Paul has to say since he was a Christian. Taking his biases into account, we can use his letters for information about Jesus. And among other things, they say beyond a doubt that Jesus existed as a Jewish teacher in Palestine. Um, So that's a bit fairer to Bart Ehrman. Well, going back to this uh, sort of out-of-context quote about the non-Christian sources, I would make a number of responses and spend the rest of the talk briefly looking and backing up those uh, responses. First of all, I'd note that considering that Paul was a Roman citizen, Paul's writings count as a first-century personal correspondence by a Roman religious scholar who mentions Jesus. The categories that uh, Ehrman uses in this quote here uh, actually seem to overlap in a more complicated way than he allows for. Or or secondly, what about the writings of a certain Greek doctor that we have, sometimes travelling companion of Paul, named Luke? Um, Luke 
is a first century Greek historian. He's a first century Greek Christian historian. Um, so again, the categories overlap. But third, one can't automatically discount evidence from non-Christian sources in, say, the second century. That's not too far after the events to be used, historically speaking. Fourthly, one can't automatically discount Christian sources from the second century. Again, not too far removed. People like Ignatius or Polycarp, some of the very early church fathers, as we call them, personally knew apostles such as Peter and John. Fifth, note that Ehrman grants the importance of the first century Christian testimony about Jesus. And six, one can't automatically discount the archaeological evidence for Jesus. No, there's no inscription from the first century that mentions Jesus, but as we'll see, there are later ones and there are pictures and so on. So, with someone like Gary R. Habermas, and I'm going to read this whole quote, but he basically points out that there are at least 17 non-Christian writings that record more than 50 details about Jesus' life, teachings, death, and perceived resurrection, uh, dated to within 20 to 150 years after Jesus' death. And that's quite early by the standards of ancient historiography. Here's my point about the early church fathers. So if this is Jesus here, this is year zero. These are the eyewitness generation, apostles like Peter and John, Philip the Evangelist and so on. Then we're into the second generation of Christians here. And we know from their writings and writings of uh, other uh, early church sources that, for example, Polycarp knew John, Papias knew John, and Philip's daughter, uh, Philip the Evangelist, uh, that Ignatius knew Peter and John, and so on. Their uh, faith in Jesus was not so much based upon written texts at that stage, but upon the testimony of people who had known Jesus. Uh, the living and abiding voice, uh, as they called it. So just look at Ignatius of Antioch. Uh, Eusebius, the church historian, says died in 108 AD, uh, martyred uh, by being torn to shred by lions uh, for wanting to say Jesus was Lord and not the emperor, um, referenced by various other sources. And we have his seven letters written to the different Christian communities on his way to Rome to be martyred, and here's a quote from his letter to the Tralians, for example, encouraging them about Jesus Christ who died for us that you might escape death through faith in his death. And he's uh, writing against an early Christian her uh, her heresy of Christianity uh, that was tempted to say, well, of course Jesus was divine, but it's stupid to think that he was human as well, because that's below the dignity of divinity to do all this incarnation business. So he has this sort of creedal passage in the letter to the Tradians where he says, Turn a deaf ear to any speaker who avoids mention of Jesus Christ, who was of David's line, born of Mary, was truly born, ate and drank, persecuted under Pontius Pilate, truly, truly crucified and died, not just appeared to be crucified and to die, and so on, as this early uh, docetic heresy held. When you get to the Gospels themselves... Even comparing the sort of uh, range of conservative and liberal datings for them, you see there's only about a 20 to 30 year difference between them. Even on the liberal datings, uh, they are uh, all the four Gospels that we have in the New Testament are from within the first century, 
within the lifetime of eyewitnesses, and indeed they're the only first century Gospels that we have. In terms of, I'm going to whip through this very quickly, but it's just in terms of standard historiographical questions that you want to ask of historical reports, like, well, how long after the thing it's reporting does the written document come from? And you do a comparison uh, for the New Testament and for other uh, ancient works of history, like um, Josephus's Antiquities and so on. You'll note that the, the four Gospels compare very well in terms of the gap between the event and when they're actually writing about the event. With respect to Jesus' says Ehrman, we've got numerous independent accounts of his life in sources lying behind the Gospels, uh, including in the writings of Paul as well. Sources that originate in Jesus' native tongue, Aramaic, and that can be dated to within just a year or two of his life before the religion moved to convert pagans. Historical sources like this are pretty astonishing for an ancient figure of any kind. We've got relatively ex- extensive writings from one first century author, Paul, etc. Um, he's talking here like um, about certain sources that scholars think predate and are included in the historical gospels. This is the general order that people think they were written in and the five different sources that those Gospels incorporate within them. And, of course, those sources predate their incorporation into the Gospels as we have them. Also, as Dean L. Overman notes, the earliest literary sources that we know for certain were written within decades of Jesus' death contain these devotional creeds and hymns and and so on that pre-exist them uh, and that present present compelling evidence of a pattern of worship of Jesus of Nazareth uh, as a resurrected divine being uh, dating from a time almost contemporaneous with the events they describe. Again, here's a nice, I, like, I like these little graphs. This is a graph between the, the gap between the original writing of those sources and when we have the, our earliest copies of them. So if you're worried about, can, well, can we get back to what was originally reported, even if it was reported quite close to the events, Um, Again, do a comparison with the rest of ancient history and you'll find the New Testament stacks up very well against other things that ancient historians would be quite happy uh, relying upon. This is uh, the number of manuscripts, just a comparison of the number of Greek manuscripts against the total number of manuscripts for everything else. Um, You'll notice there's quite a big discrepancy in favour of a lot more data available to New Testament scholars for uh, reconstructing what the original uh, uh, autographic texts said. Mentioned briefly a little bit about archaeology, and I think we'll finish on this. Um, this is a recently 2005 discovery uh, in the grounds of Megiddo Prison, indeed, and you can find some nice videos of this online. But here's a top down view of this uh, Christian prayer hall or church uh, with these mosaics around it, uh, including some fish symbols and so on, but particularly. Interesting is this inscription here. It talks about the Lady Aceptus who um, donated the money to the church to buy the table for the communion in the middle. And it says the God-loving Aceptus has offered the table to God or to the God, Jesus Christ, as a memorial. Uh, this has been dated by pottery, etc., to about 230 uh, AD. It's a nice one to bring up if anyone mentions to you the whole Dan Brown Da Vinci Code theory that nobody thought of Jesus until they 
proposed that and voted on it at the Council of Nicaea in 325. Um, well, this is 100 years before the Council of Nicaea. Clearly, there were people thinking of Jesus as divine, provable just from a bit of archaeology, let alone going to any ancient documents. Or the Alexamenos Graffito, um, dated to around 200 AD. Um, some silly so-and-so worshipping this man who's made such an ass of himself that he got himself crucified. And what an idiot to worship some crucified. What are you worshipping some crucified dude for? Um, the little title here is Alex Minos worships his God, or Alex Minos worship your God. There's some dispute on the, the translation. Um, finally, uh, going within 30 years after the crucifixion, uh, because James was martyred in AD 62, which we know from Josephus, um, the uh, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus, ossuary discovered in 2002. Um, there was a lot of controversy about this as to whether it was a forgery or a fake and so on. I think the balance of the evidence now is that it was genuine. There was a whole court case about it that eventually got thrown out. But if you want to delve more into it, you can read um, Herschel Shanks' book, The Brother of Jesus. He's the editor-in-chief of Biblical Archaeological Review Journal. And he says, in his opinion, this box is more likely the ossuary of James, the brother of Jesus, and Nazareth than not. Um, so there is an inscription <laughs> that mentions Jesus from the first century, um, if it's genuine. But again, as with any archaeology, there's people on both sides of that kind of thing. Uh, so you might want to take that with a pinch of salt, but read into it. It's very interesting. So take-home message... With Bar Omen, I would agree we've got more evidence for Jesus than we have for almost anyone else from his period. Whether we like it or not, Jesus certainly existed. The real question is, how much reliable evidence do we have about him and his activities and his claims and what the best explanation of that data is? And I think Keith's talk will pick up on some of that uh, a bit more directly. That passage in, in particular, like um, Hebrews, where he talks about having um, faith is our hope in what we do not yet see. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he's talking there about the fulfillment of God's promise of bringing heaven, the new heavens and the, and the new earth. And, and he's saying, you've got to have trust in God that he will fulfill his promises without demanding that you see the fulfillment of that promise here and now, in the time of, of the persecution. But he's not saying you've got to have that trust without basing it on anything. Uh, and indeed, the rest of the New Testament is very clear that we can have that trust in God's promises and our faith in Jesus and so on, on the basis of good reasons for having it, and that Christians should have reasons available to give people who ask about it. So it's a verse that is sometimes... People, and I've seen Sam Harris do this, interpret it out of context as saying this means faith is the same thing as blind faith. Um, but in the context and in the, of the letter itself and the rest of the New Testament, it clearly doesn't mean that. Of, uh, faith is, it all begins with faith. And the, even the faith is a gift. 
Well, this comes down to what you mean by faith. And in the biblical tradition, faith does not equal blind faith. It means uh, being convinced that something is true and putting your trust in it. Yeah. Hence, the title of this series, Reasonable yeah. Faith, it is that you can make reasonable, rational arguments that say you should put your trust in it, yeah. and that's what faith is. Is that him? Yeah. Yeah. Um, with regards to the archaeological evidence and just the dating evidence of, of, of the document mm. 30 to 40 years after his death, um, what are the theories, and if there are evidence, mm. behind why there's nothing in that time gap in those 30 years? Yes, well, it's not quite that there... Yeah, well, that's it, you see. It's not quite that... We don't have anything from that time gap, but that's quite a a different thing from saying there was nothing. And I I mentioned the, uh, the, the various sources that the New Testament Gospels drew on uh, and there's debate in scholarship as to whether any of those sources, whether they're oral sources or whether some of them were written sources. And some scholars think that some of them, particularly Q, which ends up in Matthew, um, was a written source. But we don't have that source. It's, it's a hypothesis about where certain information come from. And the basic fact of archaeology and, and ancient history is very little remains from the past, and you know, it times, ravages, destroy stuff. People write over things. Fires happen. People take buildings apart and use them to build other buildings and so on and so forth. So what we have from the past is very fragmentary. Uh, and uh, it's, as Ehrman says, it's kind of astonishing that we have the amount of evidence that we do have. Um, it would be lovely to have more, of course. Every historian is always looking for more. And as time goes on, more gets dug up, new bits of papyrus get found, and, and so on. Um, have they found, have, they, have historians or, or, or philosophers or theologians, have they um, devised any theories of their own that you know of um, as to why we found them at that date or why they were written at that point? So <coughs> yes. If, if there, there may have been, like you say, something, it doesn't mean it didn't exist yeah. in those 30 years, but and that's a reasonable argument, but um, why is there anything that's proposed with regards to why they are... Yeah, I, I, think or not? The, I think the general opinion is that in, an, in, a, in a culture that, 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 was more, that was more sensitive to the importance of oral history, and they thought of history as from the eyewitnesses and the living voice and so on, it was at the stage when the eyewitnesses started dying out that people started to say, actually, it would be good to have this stuff written down from them. Okay. Um, now, if you, you know, I think some of the sources were, were written previous to that, and actually I think some of the composition of the, of the New Testament was, was quite early, including the Gospels. But um, certainly you, you see by sort of John's Gospel, you get this sort of strange mixture of the voice of John the Apostle, like the one who saw this about the blood and um, water coming out the side of Christ and the one who has seen this has testified and we know that he, he speaks the, who's this we suddenly we know that he John who's the authority behind this gospel speaks the truth kind of the disciple circle of John it's clearly the authority of John and his eyewitness testimony that stands behind the gospel but it's clearly not him that's finished 
the completed gospel as we have it. Um, so people were drawing upon eyewitness knowledge and so on, and maybe John started off that, but his disciples wanted to get it down and, and kind of completed that process. Similarly with Mark, we have, um, it, uh, it's actually um, Mark who was um, Peter's interpreter. Peter didn't start writing a gospel, but Mark seems to have started writing down the gospel from the, from the preaching story, like preaching notes from translating Peter in Rome and so on, and then seems to have incorporated a number of other sources and perhaps shown those to Peter and said, you know, is this along the right lines? And then you, you get this process of composition that goes over a number of years, actually, until you get to the final form of the sort of published gospel over two or three years. Um, so it's not quite as straightforward as when was it written? Um, well, over a period of time, perhaps drawing on a number of different types of sources, some have written, some not, uh, within that period of the, of the eyewitnesses and the first generation. And that's, yeah. So you get, you get a Bible uh, from the original sources? Yeah, well, you can certainly get... Um, Bible in, in what's called, um, well, New Testament Greek, uh, the editions that draw upon um, the manuscripts in the original languages, which scholars then use to work out what's the most likely reading of the original text. Uh, and you get what, called the, what are called the critical editions of the New Testament uh, in Greek. And it's from those critical editions that people then make translations into different languages. Do they sell well? Do they sell they don't, they don't sell well because not very many people read ancient Greek and so on, but uh, you can find them in, um, in university libraries and, and scholarly uh, sources. Does the Syriac yeah. Orthodox Church still use the Koine editions? Uh, I think your knowledge is probably outstripping me on that. They might well do. Yeah, but certainly, when the, as the New Testament originally written in Greek then spreads out from Jerusalem around the place. You get different manuscript traditions in different languages because as they, it spreads out, people then translate it, the copies, into their own language. So you get uh, Coptic, Syriac, Latin, and so on from different geographical areas. And one of the things you can do in reconstructing the text is say, well, here's this sort of manuscript family tree in this language, in this area. Here's this manuscript family tree in a different language, and we can compare and contrast and see what changes creep in over time because we've got you know, an early manuscript and a later one and we can see what percentage difference there is. And using all of that data, because we've got so much of it, it's very easy to reconstruct with a high level of probability what the original text said. It's a bit like doing genetic philology. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that makes it quite interesting why the colonist conception, which, I mean world is sort of sort of the moment that oh there's so many different versions how can you be sure that it's it's really yeah. to the old text and when you actually there is actually a lot of <coughs> evidence and a lot of effort that's gone in that's to it. containing the originality of the text and that is something that even as a, a new Christian myself mm, like mm. previously being on the other side of that argument that I would follow that but mm. that was to admittedly my own ignorance really. Yeah it's a very good point world still believes that oh, there's so many different Bibles, there's so many different versions. Yeah, and that's where if, if you only had two different manuscripts and there's a difference between them, 
how do you know which one reflects the original manuscript copies? So well, it could be this, it could be that. If you've only got two, what do you do? Toss a coin? If you've got 20, and that difference is only in one of them, and five of them are from one manuscript tree, and five, six from another, and so on, it's much easier to work out what the original said. The more I've, So the fact that we've got so many manuscripts, and then so many differences between them because we've got so many. So sometimes you'll see people say, look, there are up to 400,000 know, differences in all of these copies, variations in the text. How do we possibly know what the original said? Well, it's because we've got so many manuscripts that we have so many differences... And that very fact is a good fact, because because we've got so many manuscripts, it's easy to work out what the original said. Um, so that the, the number of variations is actually a good sign. And yeah, exactly. And the vast majority of those differences are not of substance. No, no. They're of yeah. small linguistic detail, rather than, yeah, yeah. rather than actually the facts themselves. Yeah. I think we should move on there. Grant? Chance to pick up a pizza afterwards. Now that I have a short break, there is some more coffee and cake and see if you want to take any refills.